Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We'll start today's session with group meditation. I'll guide you through it if you want to listen. If you want to turn off the sound, you can just meditate for the first 15 minutes. If you have questions, you can post them already in the chat after 15 minutes. We'll collect the questions together and we'll close down the chat to only questions at that point and ask and answer the questions. So for the meditation portion, start with your eyes closed. Your hands on your lap, palms up, one on top of the other. If you can, you can sit cross-legged, one leg in front of the other. And with your eyes closed, just focus your attention on the abdomen feeling of tension in the abdomen that changes slightly as you breathe in. And then changes again as you breathe out. So there'll be a sensation of tension as you breathe in. And a sensation of the release of tension as you breathe out. In English, you recognize these as rising and falling. You can note them in whatever language or with whatever words make sense to you. And just recognize the experience with the word. And silently in your mind, rising as it rises and falling as it falls.
As you're focused on the stomach, it's easily, you find your mind easily distracted by other experiences. When you find yourself distracted by anything, you then apply your attention to that. So if you feel pain or pleasure or calm, All of the, each of these can distract you from your focus on the stomach. When you feel pain, you, you can only think about getting rid of the pain. When you feel pleasure or calm, you become enamored by the feeling and find your mind drifting because of it. So try and keep yourself present. Focus on the feelings, say pain, pain. If you feel happy, say happy, happy or calm, if you feel calm. And just repeat the word to yourself as a means of reminding yourself of what you're experiencing, keeping you focused on the experiential nature of it without getting lost in it or distracted by it. Pain. Pain. Not trying to make it go away or make it stay or anything. You'll find that it's very much not in your control anyway. But when it's gone, just go back to the stomach. Another common distraction is thoughts. You find yourself thinking about the past, future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, all kinds of different kinds of thoughts.
the Lord doesn't matter whether you're thinking about the past or future, good thoughts or bad thoughts. Just focus on the thought and say to yourself, thinking, thinking. Remind yourself of that nature of it so that you don't get lost in the content of the thought. Just say thinking, thinking. The idea isn't to not think. The goal is not to stop the mind from thinking. Just like we're not trying to stop the pain or the pleasure or the calm. The idea is to have a better relationship with our experiences so that they don't overwhelm us. We don't become lost in them. So that we don't lose sight of the experiential reality. As we stay focused on experiential reality, our experiences, this is where wisdom, knowledge, understanding comes. So we start to see how the mind and body work, see how reality works. We start to see why we're suffering what it is that we're doing to ourselves that we weren't able to see before. The next object is our mind states, our emotions, our quality of our mind at any given moment. Mainly the five hindrances, liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt, these are qualities of mind. Separate from actual thought, these are our, our reactions to thought or the state by which we experience the thought, the quality of our experience. They're called hindrances because these qualities will get in the way of our clarity of mind. But regardless, we want to be mindful of all of them, even mindful of their opposites. When you have clarity of mind and you notice that, you can be mindful of that. 
when you're focused, you can say focused. When you're mindful, you can say mindful or knowing. But when you like something or dislike something, you should say to yourself, liking, liking, or disliking, disliking. These ones easily get us carried away. It's easy to get lost in our emotions. Worry, restlessness, fear, doubt. Try and note any time any one of these comes up. Just to bring yourself back to the present reality. Keep the mind from making more out of things than they are judging and reacting to experience. And finally, the senses, so seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Don't forget to be mindful of these when they arise. Doesn't matter what you see or hear or smell or taste or feel or think. Just simply remind yourself of the experience to keep yourself present. Seeing, seeing or hearing, hearing until it goes away. Okay, that's the meditation portion. That's the, the pure meditation portion. The rest of the session should be a meditation session, but we'll now allow the asking of questions and I will engage in the answering of questions. In the meantime, you can just stay with your eyes closed if you don't have any questions and continue to be mindful meditating with us. We do have questions. I sometimes struggle to discern between noting the disliking of an object and the wanting it to go away. How should I handle this? Might I be overthinking it? Yeah, I mean, you might be confused or doubting or unsure, and you should note that as well. That's a part of kind of like overthinking. Um, but it's the the habit of analyzing or doubting yourself or uh, or you know, overanalyzing things, overthinking things is a good way of putting it sometimes. But you should just note the experience of it when you're confused, unsure, or wondering, however it, it hits you. Um, but as far as the, the answer, the, the, the two, you should just note whatever it appears to you as. They're quite similar, right? Wanting something to go away or disliking it, but whichever it seems to be to you, just note that one, wanting, wanting, or disliking, disliking. When I do sitting meditation, I try to go to the sitting, but I seem to be stuck 
on the rising and falling. Any advice? Um, you, you can note that fact, knowing knowing that you're knowing that you're uh, stuck on it. But you can also just ignore the rising and falling until you're aware that you're sitting for that exercise. I've struggled with keeping the fifth precept. Is it worth meditating at all, or do I need to get a hold of that first? Well, you can do them together, but you shouldn't expect any great results if you're not keeping the fifth precept. Or you should expect it to be a, a serious uh, limiting factor to your progress. But there's no reason why can't use meditation to help you give up things like drugs or alcohol. It's just going to be a struggle, that's all. I'd recommend if you really can't keep the five precepts, you might want to find a, envir a better environment, a suitable environment for detox. There are even centers you can check yourself into. I don't know how realistic that is, depending where you are, but yeah, the thing, think, think of a detox center, and if you're not able to find one or find your way into one, um, try, and, try and find a way to incorporate some of the qualities of a detox center into your environment as a means of kind of pushing you to stay sober. And then, of course, use the meditation to allow you to deal with the withdrawal. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, because if you're practicing a different meditation tradition, well, maybe you'd find this one helpful to help you, help prevent you from needing drugs and alcohol. When I am in a dark place, I feel like it's never going to end. Is it normal to feel that way? although I am aware that it's temporary. We're not concerned whether something feels normal, because we're not concerned with being normal. We're concerned with seeing clearly. So that feeling is just a feeling, and that's what we want to focus on. Our concern is not whether things come or go. Uh, the intention is not to make things come or make things go. And you have to remind yourself of that, that any desire for something to come or for something to go is still a desire. Any worry that something won't go or won't come is still just a worry. And it's those things that we're interested in. Um, as far as being in a dark place, I assume you don't mean uh, with the lights off. So you probably mean some emotionally dark place. And it's important that you are able to identify what the exact experience is that you are calling a dark place. Because using terminology like that is is unhelpful in the sense that it it um it dulls the i don't know the word it 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 um obscures the clarity of uh, perception of the object when you call something by a generic term that doesn't actually describe it and this is why we try to find words that describe our experiences because they help to pinpoint our awareness when you are for example depressed when you are sad when you are afraid 
No, those are going to be much better words because they're much more clear about what you're actually experiencing. So rather than identifying your state as being in a dark place, try and identify it as the arising of certain experiences. And that's what meditation helps you do. So you try to focus and say to your focus on the emotion, saying to yourself, sad, sad, or depressed, depressed. Not being concerned whether it goes away or not. If you want it to go away, then focus on that wanting. If you're afraid it's never going to go away or depressed that it's never going away, go away. Note that as well. I am stuck in the realm of hungry ghosts. Is there a quick way out of here? Is this really a serious question? Um, so I'm assuming we don't actually have a, a ghost here. Although that's probably a... I shouldn't... That's probably an overly quick assumption. But assuming that that's the case, that we don't have a hungry ghost, then you are not stuck in the realm of hungry ghosts. And this may be your way of saying that you are, I don't know, stuck in a realm of always wanting things you don't have, because that's uh, how someone would metaphorically describe themselves as being a hungry ghost. Uh, then you should note wanting. But I would say, rather than answer this question, I'd rather you maybe re-ask it by uh, actually telling me what situation you're in, or by affirming that you are a ghost and you're wondering how, as a ghost who is able to send questions on YouTube, you should uh, work to get out of that realm. So I'd like a little, little more clarity with the question, if possible. For beginners, how much would you recommend the time duration for meditation? For an absolute beginner, it still depends on you because you're not a beginner. We don't start life as beginners. You have a lot from past lives and this life as well that makes you not a beginner, makes you not equal to other people who are just beginning. So for some people, 10 minutes of walking, 10 minutes of sitting is going to be hard. For other people, it's going to be quite easy. But I would recommend that you test that out, that you try to do some meditation every day, uh, but figure out how much is comfortable for you in the beginning. If you can do 10, 10 easy, try to go up to 15, 15. And if you can do that, then I would start suggesting trying to do twice a day, 15, 15. And if you can do that easily and you feel like doing more, you can work up to 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting in the morning and the evening. But I would suggest that for a real beginner, especially someone who's asking this question, uh, you're probably not there in the beginning. So try and start with 15, 15. Uh, and if that's too much, you can do at least 10, 10. But we do walking first and then sitting, if you weren't aware of that. Half and half. When I sleep less, my thoughts go all over the place and become negative. How do I maintain my thoughts and meditate in this state? Well, those are all objects of meditation. When your thoughts go all over the place, that's distraction, and you would note distracted, distracted. If you're negative, uh, you should pinpoint what you actually mean by being negative. 
probably disliking, some sort of disliking, but you can even pinpoint it further if there's anger, frustration, boredom, sadness, fear, etc. Uh, try and pinpoint what the thought is and then make a note of it. If you haven't read our booklet, you might find that helpful to give you some advice on that. As far as maintaining your thoughts, I, I don't quite know what you mean, but it sounds like you're talking about um, keeping your thoughts from being negative or maintaining few thoughts or that sort of thing, and that's not what we're interested in. We're not immediately trying to change our state of mind. What we're trying to do is see our state of mind as it is clearly. And that act of trying to see and, and of, of actually seeing clearly will create a change in the mind itself. You see, it has nothing to do with, with our, us directly. Our focus is never going to be on that change. It's going to be on what causes that change, which is the clarity. Focus on the clarity and never try to change. The change happens as a result of the clarity. How should I approach boredom? I find myself bored, even with the things I enjoy, or the things I do which I think have the most meaning. Alcohol helps with that, but it's not good for me, as I know. Well, you might be surprised to, or maybe not, to know that enjoyment actually breeds boredom. So perhaps that's what you're, you're actually starting to see, is that your enjoyment is actually not making you less bored, or less susceptible to boredom. Um, it kind of presupposes that boredom is a bad thing. And technically that's true, but the, per the perspective that boredom is a bad thing is not going to serve you well or the perspective of trying to um, relieve the boredom is problematic. Try and look at boredom as just another experience without prejudgment, without prejudice. Try and just say to yourself, bored, bored. Because the thing is, boredom becomes kind of like a weapon or a, uh, an instigation, a trigger. And rather than taking boredom as a trigger, take it as an object of awareness. Try and look at the boredom. Examine it like you're in a laboratory. And once you get a better relationship towards the boredom, you don't feel the need to relieve it. And you start to see that the boredom itself is meaningless. Bored, bored. And you're just less inclined to get bored by things. So rather than um, giving, um, valid, giving validity to the boredom, you start to see that boredom is in an invalid response. So when you give validity to it, you say, ah, yes, this is true. This is boring what I'm doing. How can I, what can I do to make my mind appease this boredom? Yeah. And you'll never find that. You'll never be appeased. You're just encouraging it. When I meditate, I feel as if I get distracted by throat clearing and swallowing and find that it removes me from the meditation itself. How do I fix this? Fix the fixation on meditation being a state. Meditation is not a state that you can be removed from. 
I mean, it is. There are certain meditations where that is true. This Mindfulness is not that. Mindfulness meditation isn't about being in a certain state. In fact, you'll find yourself being in many different states. And it's quite unpredictable which state you'll be in at a given time. So when you see your state of mind change, perhaps because of throat clearing or swallowing, then you have to be mindful of the new state that you're in. That's all. There's no perception of one being better or worse. Uh, I mean, if there is, then you would note that. But when you clear your throat, you would note that feeling that goes along with it. When you want to do it, you can note wanting or intending. And swallowing, you can note the feeling, swallowing. Uh, but when you find your mind has, has changed as a result of that, first of two things. First of all, it may be that you're not noting the old state. Maybe the old state was a state of calm or, or fixation, fixedness or, or pleasure even. And you should note those, and you probably weren't noting them if you feel like you were removed from a state. That other state you should have been noting just as much as the new state. But the other thing is noting the new state when you maybe feel distracted or whatever the feeling is, just knowing that it's changed, you can note feeling or distracted or knowing if you're just knowing that your mind state has changed. We're not about fixing things. So when you find yourself wanting to fix something, note wanting, wanting. If you dislike a new state, disliking. How do I meditate properly when I am sleep-deprived and tired? Mm, you might find yourself having to sleep rather than meditate, but you can do lying meditation before you sleep. I mean, sleep-deprived is when you need more sleep. That's the only time when you could call it sleep-deprived, and it's not always true that you need more, you need a lot of sleep. It's usually just because you're stressed and, and you've stressed your body, you've stressed your mind. Now, if you can be very mindful, you need much less sleep. And so the idea of being sleep-deprived doesn't really come up. Overall, just try to be more mindful in your life, and you'll find you need less sleep. So incorporate the practice into your daily life, but try to do more formal practice whenever you can, little bits here and there even. And you'll find yourself less... Um, less tired, find yourself needing less sleep. I got diagnosed with heart problems. I see death getting closer. I note worry, but how can I know all work was not vain? Will I be able to practice after death? What does death cancel, and what doesn't it? Death doesn't cancel anything. Um, it's more the 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 lack of um, stimulus from the brain that is going to uh, unanchor you from a lot of your memories. So you'll find yourself forgetting a lot of things quite quite quickly during your time in the womb as new experiences come about and you start to gravitate towards them, you very quickly lose your, your past memories if you're born as a human again. If you're not born in the womb, it's very easy to keep past memories. Um, but regardless, what you don't lose is your quality of mind, the clarity of mind. 
and or, or the opposite if your mind is unclear. But how you can know that it's not in vain? The way we gain confidence about the results of meditation is by the quality of our mind in the present. So you should always be reassured by the quality of the mind when you meditate, rather than worrying about what the potential results might be. Whatever's in the future is connected to the present, is going to be very much dependent upon the state of the present. And so a strong understanding of the quality of your mind from moment to moment in the present should give you full confidence of what your future is going to be. If you see the anger and the greed and the delusion in your mind, you should have full confidence that those are going to be there and are going to affect your future. If you start to see less greed, less anger, less delusion in your mind from moment to moment, you should be fully confident that they will be less likely to appear in the future. And so, for example, the worry, if you find yourself able to um, have a, a different relationship with the things that trigger worry, such that you're no longer triggering the worry, based on seeing how useless worry is, based on seeing how the things you worry about aren't even real or aren't certainly worth worrying about or clinging to in any way. You find yourself clinging less to them, and you find the worry being less, then you should be reassured that in the future there will be less worry. <laughs> it's, not, um, it's, it's not really hard. The, the problem is we often are fixated on the future. Yeah or the past. We're fixated on whether our state of mind is uh, better than the past, or what's it going to be like in the future, that sort of thing. So are, are we different than we were before? Try and focus specifically on, on the quality of your mind right now. And as you start to cultivate clarity here and now, even though it seems like just drops in the bucket. It's that clarity that's going to change the future. One drop at a time. While doing meditation, when will I know that I am enlightened? Well, when you become enlightened. I don't know any other way to put it. When you are enlightened, you will know that you're enlightened. Don't worry about that. Not something. If you're still unsure, then, then you're, not un, you're not enlightened. It's not something you just slip into without realizing it. For most people, it's a long and hard journey. Today, I sat for meditation, and when I came in, my brother began to play loud music 
and I found myself listening to it. I noted the pleasure and the experience. Is this still meditating? Yes. Yes, learning about pleasure is important. Learning about the liking. You may not have noted the liking. You should note that as separate from the pleasure. And also hearing, of course, that's probably what you were noting. Absolutely. Learning about that is very interesting, very important. It's going to help you have a different, help you have a more clear relationship to experience in general. I've been depressed and emotionally drained for a long time. I feel like nothing helps me. I even became resentful toward my practice. What can I do to break this cycle? How to ease this suffering? I'll try not to dwell in the past or worry about the future. Um, being depressed, having been depressed for a, or emotionally drained for a long time is, is your description. It's a narrative, right? And focusing on that is really not going to help you because it creates self. It's, it's just a concept. It's not real in the same way that what you're experiencing now is real. But what you're experiencing now is only momentary, and you can deal with that, especially because it's real. The past is just in your mind. You, you think about what you've been for so long, and what's really happening there is a thinking and probably a disliking of it. That's what's real, not the fact that you've been such and such for so long. So try and note that. Try and see, see that that is just being conceptual. There's no reality to you having been something for so long. That's not the reality of it. The reality of it is a thought or a memory or a, a, a clinging, a disliking of that fact. I'm feeling like nothing helps you is actually part of a, a positive experience or a result of, uh, of living, seeing that you're not in control. Because the, seeing that you're in control or believing that you're in control is going to keep you clinging and keep you worrying and keep you trying and keep you frustrated when things are out of your control. So feeling like nothing helps you is the first step in changing your perspective from trying to change things to letting go of the need to change things. So when you want things to change, when you want something to help, want for this to help your situation, you have to say wanting, wanting for your situation to change. When you dislike your situation, disliking. Being resentful towards your practice is really not a big problem as it as big a problem as it seems, because practice isn't a thing either. You become resentful towards a concept. And the point is you become resentful and resentment arises, and you should note that. If you take that as an object of meditation, that resentment, that disliking. Anger even towards it. My meditation didn't help me, and you're angry at it, at it. Maybe angry at your teacher even. You should just note the anger. Say angry, angry. Um, so, and that that should answer the question of what to do to break the cycle. Because yeah, seeing it as a cycle is a good insight. But how to ease suffering is a problem. The desire to ease suffering is still aversion, and you should note that as well. Or, or wanting, if you want to ease the suffering, wishing, wanting. That really is the problem. If you didn't ever want to be free from suffering, 
can go a long way towards not actually suffering. It's just a wrong way of looking at things. This is suffering, what can I do to get rid of it? Versus this is suffering, what can I do to change my perspective on it so that I no longer suffer because of it? Should I focus on the stomach or breath at the nostril during vipassana meditation? Please advise. My advice for you is to focus on the stomach. I'd suggest that you read our booklet on how to meditate, and that's only during sitting meditation. You should be aware that walking meditation is very useful and important as well, so try and start with walking, and then your focus is on the foot, uh, and then do follow that by an equal amount of sitting meditation, and then your focus to start would be on the stomach but this is only a start it's only a useful object to focus on when there's nothing else because anytime something else comes up you would note that as well but i recommend uh, if you're interested read our booklet on how to meditate and you could even do an at-home course if you're really interested in learning how we practice mindfulness meditation when i do vipassana meditation i start breathing fast and it stays so the whole hour. Should I try to breathe more normal, longer breaths? No, not necessarily. You might want to figure out if there's something that you're not noting that is causing you to breathe very quickly, like stress or worry or even desire or so on. Um, but in any case, just note the, you can even note rise, fall, if it rising is too long. Just make sure you're noting it however it happens. You can also note something if you feel like it's going very quickly. You can note knowing, knowing, but you don't have to try and change it. I have been following the precepts, trying to live a life of simply being. I however feel that this is making me alone, which I am trying to accept, but it feels backwards. Where am I going wrong? Well, we are alone. There's nobody else in your mind. There's nobody else in your experience. In your experience, there's only you. But feeling like you're alone isn't a problem. Um, it's just that the the Im, the uh, implicit in your statement is that you see it as a bad thing. That that being alone is a bad thing. So this is um, a part of loneliness or the desire to be uh, in a community, the desire to be connected to other beings, and that's just a desire. Throughout our lives, we might sometimes be alone, we might sometimes be surrounded by others. That's just the nature of things. When we become attached to one or the other, we want to be alone or we want to be with other people. That's when trouble begins, because you can't always be that way. Meditation does give you a persp better perspective to help you see how alone we really are no matter if we're surrounded by other people or not. Uh, but that only becomes a problem based on our prejudice. We prefer to be connected to others. And you should note that wanting, wanting. The, the wanting is the problem, not the being connected or the not being connected. It's going to be different for, for everyone. Some people are often with others, surrounded by others. Some people are often alone. Ultimately, we're always, in some sense, alone.
All I know is suffering. Will meditation help me if I dedicate myself to it? And what will I be without suffering? Less myself? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so creating an identity around suffering is kind of what you're what you're hinting at. And uh, that's just, that's all that it is. It's just the creation of identity. It's not real. When you lose that identity, you haven't lost something valuable. You've just lost an illusion, an imaginary narrative that you have about who you are. Um, but as far as knowing suffering, that's actually a good thing. Um, the problem is we don't really understand it. So you, when you say you know it, there's probably still some reaction to it, and that reaction is based on ignorance about it. You think you know it, and the truth is you're actually ignorant about the true nature of it. If you were to see it more clearly, you wouldn't react to it. It wouldn't even cause you to suffer. So one thing to understand as a beginner about mindfulness is it's not about getting rid of your suffering. That's not our point. The point is to change the way we look at the things that we call suffering so that they no longer make us suffer, so that we no longer react to them. That's what it's going to change about you. It will also help you to get rid of any identity, like I, suffering is who I am, etc., like that. I mean, those are just ideas. They're just concepts. They're really, We really have no identity. Identity is just an illusion. It's just not, not exactly an illusion. It's just a construct. It's not valuable in any way. Not something you have to worry about losing. It's not just something we cling to. And that clinging causes stress and suffering. When a bodily itch arises during meditation, should I relieve it by scratching or just be with it? You should start by trying to just be with it. And if you feel the need to scratch, you can scratch, but try to move, do it mindfully, say wanting, and then moving, and then rubbing is better than scratching. You can just say rubbing, rubbing, and then bring the hand back mindfully. I see aversion quite often. As an example, thinking to practice and working in general, I note the aversion, but then I lack the energy to keep going, the discipline. I give up quickly. How to push myself? Well, we note the lack of energy, or whatever it is that you call lack of energy. We don't particularly need any special energy to practice, but there'll be something else like tiredness that you should note. Note what's actually is there, not the lack of energy. I mean, you could note that as knowing, knowing that you don't have energy, but it's more likely to be a drowsiness, a tired, uh, and probably some desire, desire to lie down, because that's ple more pleasant, desire to go do something comfortable or pleasing or entertaining. And you should note those as well. It's quite likely that there's something you're just not noticing that you should be noting, because without that, then you'd have no problem being mindful. Meditation doesn't take energy. You're just walking back and forth or you're just sitting still. What takes energy is the dealing with your wants, your likes and dislikes, your desires and aversion without acting on them. That's quite stressful. So if you're not mindful of those, they'll tire you out very quickly. If you have aversion towards practice or, or anything you do, 
should be mindful of the aversion. Now you say you note that, and then right, be mindful of the whatever comes next. The thing is, our mind changes very quickly, and so we 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 sometimes fall into the trap of noting one thing and being so uh, focused on noting it that when it's gone, we get caught off guard and we think, well, I did it. Why didn't it make me enlightened? You know, why, why is there still, why didn't it work? Right. Because we're not noticing what comes after the thing that we noted. We think, well, I did the work. The point is the, the the work goes from moment to moment, and we, you lose sight of what what has replaced it, which is an object that is very still very much a part of your practice. We're not uh, composed of a single problem. Aversion is a problem, but once it's gone, there's going to be other things, perhaps desire, perhaps drowsiness, and perhaps distraction. So one thing you learn as you go is to be flexible and to not. Let yourself get caught off guard, being uh, ready for what comes next. It keeps you on your toes. What should one note while waiting for the feeling of the touching point to arise? Is it okay to note waiting without having to go back to the breath? So the touching point doesn't necessarily have to be a feeling. What you'll see is that it's unpredictable whether there will be a feeling. Once your mind is touching that spot, just say to yourself, touching, not being concerned with what you are or aren't feeling. And part, of the pro part of the exercise is to see that it's unpredictable. I want things I can't or shouldn't have. I feel I haven't had enough time free to do many things. Do I need to be in samsara for longer before I am ready to be enlightened? Well, I mean, it's quite a bit simpler than that. Wanting and um, feeling a, a lack are a cause for suffering. And so learning to see those wants and desires and feelings of inadequacy more clearly is going to help you to become free from suffering. So the problem is that we, we, we take our wantings as something significant. We give meaning to our emotions. Like it's meaningful that I like certain things or want certain things. It's meaningful that I dislike certain things. And it's not. There's no meaning behind them except for your habit. You have a habit of aversion, a habit of desire or attraction. And it's often augmented by views, like a view that you need to be in samsara longer, before you're ready to be enlightened, but that's just a view. It has no meaning behind it, no meaning to it, no rationale behind it. The truth is, your wants, your desires, your feelings of inadequacy are a cause for stress and suffering, and if you learn to see them more clearly and the objects that you desire more clearly, you will suffer less, and that's the way to become enlightened. Now, if you don't want that, 
then you'll just be doomed to suffer. I mean, you'll you'll never be free from suffering until you are able to create the right view of seeing how it's causing you stress and suffering. Whether you see that now or in the future, well, that's up to you. Or never. It's up to you. The Buddha said that the most important supports for meditation practice is good company and good friends. I have trouble discerning what that means. Do you have any advice for finding good friends? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to when you say this. The Buddha said that the holy life, the spiritual life, um, good friendship is the entirety of the spiritual life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have good friends. That just means that whatever companionship you have is going to influence your spiritual life. If, you're, if the people you're surrounded with are not spiritually inclined, well, that's going to completely prevent you from and it's going to really much, pretty much get in the way of your potential for developing. On the other hand, if you're surrounded by people who are spiritually inclined, of course, it's going to be a great support. But you can also be alone and, and progress spiritually. Because when you're alone, well, you don't have the problem with uh, the problem that is described or that is solved by having better uh, spiritual uh, friendship. So that's where he said that. There's a lot of other things that are important supports for meditation. You don't need necessarily to find good friends. Now, that being said, if you're not a Buddha or a Pacheka Buddha, it's most likely that you do need some support. But it doesn't mean friends in the way that you're thinking it means. The Buddha's definition of a good friend was a teacher, not necessarily an enlightened teacher even, but someone who can provide you with the enlightened teachings of the Buddha. We're usually an enlightened person, or at least somewhat enlightened, but not necessarily. Just someone who could pass on. It's, it's described as a good friend, a giver of meditation practice. So when the person who provides you with the practice that you need to follow the teachings of the enlightened beings, or to under, come to understand the teachings of the enlightened ones, that's a good friend. So you need that. Because we're not a Buddha, we, we can't get there by ourselves. We need some guidance. So find someone who can guide you, and they will be your good friend. The Buddha was said to be the best friend anyone could have. But you don't need to, you don't need companionship in the sense of hanging out with good people or something. You just need a friend who can give you the instruction and guidance. It's called a friend because we don't put ourselves up in teacher's positions. Anyone who puts themselves in a teacher's position is is uh, in danger of becoming egotistical about it. It's not really the point. We call ourselves friends because that's all we're doing is being friendly. I'll be friendly to you and give you advice in your practice. You don't have to see me as a teacher or put me up on some pedestal. That's what you should do is seek out a good friend, someone who can give you that important, friendly support. Once you have that, then you just go on your own and practice. Don't hang out with them. You'll drag them down. Do your thing. If you need support, find people who give you support and then go back to doing your thing. But, but absolutely be aware that bad friendship is going to get in the way of your practice. And don't, be, don't 
associate with people just because they're your friends. If they're bad friends, you're not going to help each other. You should both seek out a better friend so you can be both helped. When I go to sleep, I feel myself falling asleep and then I see images before falling into lucid dream. Tibetan monks speak on sleep mindfulness and I was wondering if that's a type of meditation. Well, you should note wondering, wondering. I don't really have anything to say about this. That's not really a, it's not the answer you wanted probably, but it's the answer you should get used to hearing from people like me because if you're wondering something and we're not really interested, you just say wondering, wondering. Is vipassana the only way to cultivate right speech and right action? Or is there something else that you recommend, such as particular suttas or recitation? It's, a, it's an important sort of question. I think we talked a little bit about this kind of idea this morning, like whether there's anything you need besides vipassana meditation. And what you have to understand is vipassana meditation is like growing a tree. Planting the seed is going to grow the tree. There's nothing else you can do besides planting the tree, planting the seed, and cultivating the soil and, and, and so on and, and, and caring for it. There's nothing you can do. Sorry, let me pick, go back a bit. There's nothing you can do besides planting the seed that will allow the seed to grow, not taking care of it, not watering the soil. None of that is meaningful in the same way that planting the seed is. And vipassana is like that. The actual seed is going to make the tree grow. And vipassana is like that. It's categorically different from anything else you, you might do. I mean, meditation, experience, mindfulness. Let's not say vipassana, let's say mindfulness. Is, is unlike anything else you might do. Everything else is the caring for the tree. So just because you plant the seed doesn't mean it's going to grow. And that's because it also requires care. None of those things can replace the seed. But, like, but, but just the same, in the same, at the same time, um, the seed itself is never going to grow without support. So there's so many things you can do to support it. Ethics is important as a support. Um, study is important. Sometimes when you study something, it is like a um, a support for the tree to keep it from bending, to keep it from f falling over. It's a reminder and it keeps you on track and it keeps your practice on track. So study is useful. Just don't think of right speech and right action as being uh, something you can gain in an ultimate sense from reading a book. Reading a book is only going to give you some guide to help um, direct your practice, or at least help you gain encouragement in regards to right practice. When you see that your practice is leading in a direction according to the things you've read, then you feel encouraged. When it's leading in a way different from the things you read, then you can know that you're maybe doing something wrong for example. That's how it's best thought of. Um, and, and in the same way, reading and studying can um, prevent you from uh, practicing so wrong that the tree breaks, that your practice is, is ruined. 
right? Because if you kill someone, for example, well, it would have been useful if you had known that killing someone would be so bad for your practice before you actually killed someone. So studying and learning that killing is wrong, it's a very useful thing because then you don't have to go through the experience of having killed someone, which can totally destroy your practice. As for what I'd recommend in that regard, I'd, I'd always recommend reading the suttas uh, if you're practicing meditation. If you're not practicing meditation, I would recommend much more starting to practice meditation than I would ever studying. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There are six more questions in Tier 1. Do you have time to answer? I'm ready. Thank you. How can we prepare for the death of a loved one through vipassana meditation? Well, meditation prepares you for anything in the future. It's not about some a loved one dying. I mean, a, a big part of this issue is going to be your attachment to uh, people and your disliking of loss and as a result the sadness and the suffering that comes from not getting what you want losing something that you like disassociation from the beloved i mean it's nothing to them whether you cope or don't cope you have to understand that this is all on you it has nothing to do with them it has all to do with you your attachment to them it doesn't even benefit your relationship to them to be attached to them. Uh, it doesn't benefit them to be attached to them either. It seems like it does sometimes because it makes you more inclined perhaps to help them. But that's only because we are selfish. We like to help the people we like. <laughs> We're not interested in helping the people we don't like, not so much. And the more we are attached to certain people, the more that becomes true. Where We're just inclined to be kind and helpful to those we love. But you start to see through practice that uh, that that actually isn't a healthy part of your relationship, the attachment. It's not actually beneficial. It doesn't actually make you happier. It just makes you more depend codependent on each other and much more devastated when you lose someone or when they act even in a way that you don't like. You become we're much more invested on the behaviors and, and the nature in general of those people who we are attached to. And you'll see how that just causes you more stress and suffering. And you'd be much better off if you had a general sense of friendliness towards all beings, that sort of thing. So having loved ones in the first place is, a, is really a big problem. There's no reason why we should love certain people more than others. There's no benefit to it. Uh, the Buddha said that he loved all beings, even, even Devadatta, he loved as much as he loved his son. He had no distinction in terms of uh, his his uh, feeling towards them. Devadatta was tried to kill the Buddha on several occasions. That's the sort of attitude we we should aim for. So vipassana meditation absolutely helps us with that. It helps us to have a better perspective on reality. It also helps the people we love because, as a, as an example to them, I mean, it resonates with all the people around us. Again, talking earlier about good friendship through your mindfulness. One thing that you don't talk about in this question is how you can benefit them if they're going to 
die soon, right? And being more mindful when you're around them is going to greatly benefit them. It will put them at ease so that they're less concerned about what might happen to you when they die. It will it will resonate with them when you're not suffering, when you're not afraid of their death. It helps them to be less afraid of their death. There's many ways by which vipassana helps you in that instance. Can we stand up in the sitting meditation when drowsy or when we are really restless and do standing meditation? Yes, but if you're really restless, I would recommend doing sitting or lying even. If sitting even is very restless, you could try lying down. That's one instance where lying meditation can be quite useful when you're restless. I have been having trouble cultivating my vital energy. Any tips on conquering the urges of the body? Okay, we'll be clear that this isn't what I teach. Cultivating one's vital energy is not a part of our practice. Try if you can. If you're interested, read our booklet on how to meditate. If you're interested, you could take an at-home course. That would help you to conquer the urges of the mind because body, the body doesn't actually have any urges. Even though some of the mental urges are connected with the body, they're still mental. How can one deal with depression and lots of aversion to meditation? I feel sometimes like meditation will lead me to annihilation, Nibbana. This prevents me from fully applying myself. Any advice? Nibbana is not annihilation. Nibbana is freedom from suffering. That's all it is. Aversion, depression, those are suffering. Nibbana is freedom from those. That's so, it's not a annihilation. That sort of fear of annihilation is also a cause for suffering. And when you get rid of that fear, you will also suffer less. And so that's the path to Nibbana, the path to freedom from suffering. Just try and, rather than trying to be free from all these things, try to see them more clearly. See the depression more clearly. See the aversion more clearly. Use meditation to see them clearly. And as you see them more clearly, you'll suffer from them less. I get agitated and impatient during meditation. I've tried noting it, but it only made me more fixated on it. What am I doing wrong? So, okay, this is again a case of noting one thing and then when your mind changes, not noting the next thing. Most likely that's what's happening. You noted the agitation, the impatience, good for you. It changed. You are now fixated in some way. And look at what is that. Is there a, a, a worry about it or... A, uh, and uh, a disliking of it. What do you mean by fixated on it? Because that's a new emotion that has come as a result, uh, or, or come in in a sequence. So try and note whatever that emotion is. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just seeing how the mind changes, and you should note this new fixation, whatever it is. How to not be obsessive about mindfulness? We're not about changing our experiences. So if you are obsessive about anything, you should note that obsessiveness rather than trying to not be it. 
being obsessive, be careful not to see it as something who you something that you are in general. Try and see it as something that you are in specific, means at specific instances there arises something, and because that arises often, you call yourself a be you say, I am obsessive. That's not actually accurate. Much more accurate is at times, at certain moments, maybe quite often, but still at moments, there arises something that you call obsession or something that leads you to think that you're obsessed. You should note whatever that is. If it's a liking, a disliking, etc., a worry, whatever. Thank you for giving the extra time, Vante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Well, thank you for your help and for uh, Jim and Ulu and Rahid. And thank you everyone for your questions and for your participation. Always great to see we have every week so many people coming up. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.